Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hello, and welcome to the Bechdel cast. My name is Caitlin Durante. And my name is Jamie Loftus. And you're listening to this podcast right now, did you know, that is about the uh, representation of women in film, examining that representation from an intersectional feminist lens. I did know that. Oh, good. I'm so- <laughs> wow. But it's always a pleasure to be, to be, well, it's not, we're, we're, to, we're together. I, what was that like corny quarantine hashtag? hashtag alone together I'm like Um, "Mm," feeling mostly alone but it is nice (laughs) to see it's nice to see you both um (laughs) you know we're we're together in a sense sure yes digitally digitally wow I know I can now only get zoom to work on my phone and then sometimes my phone gets really hot so Mm. look forward to that (laughs) um anyway great we're on to a great start Um, we use the Bechtel test as a jumping off point. And yes. traditionally, the Bechtel test determines whether or not two named women speak to each other about something other than a man. We are approaching it a little differently moving forward, mm-hmm. which is that do two people of marginalized genders speak to each other about something other than a man? And that is... Yes you know, just a way to broaden the test and make it a little bit more inclusive. I don't think Alison Bechtel would disagree. Yeah, I think she would That's be... That's who made the test. Oh, yeah, yes. Sorry, I forgot to mention I kind that of, part. I wonder about that sometimes because Alison Bechtel is so awesome. But then do you ever wonder, like, because she wrote it in a single comic and then she's like, and that, that is my... Le- That's like, the thing? 
It's like if you said something like smart offhand and then someone was still talking to you about there was a podcast about it 30 years later. Anyways. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that'll be like if um in 30 years from now someone has a podcast called Cat Facts with Caitlin. Right. And I'll be like that's the thing you took away from my whole bo- my body of work. <laughs> You're like I mean it's all well and good but there's just there was there was more there. There was yeah. more there. <laughs> that's on us. Uh, I'm so excited for today's episode. Yes, we have a guest who we're super excited about as well. All the way from Brooklyn, New York. She's a comedian, a writer, and co-host of Bad Romance Podcast. It's Jordane Searles. Hi. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for being here. You are. You have what? Uh, mar- mango margarita. Yes. Hell yes. What a good addition. Stoked to, to the show. <laughs> So we're covering Set It Off, yes. the 1996 film. Jordan, what is your relationship, your history with this movie? Um, this is just one of the movies that I grew up with. I don't even remember the first time that I watched it. I've watched it a million times since I was born in 92. And, you know, so I feel like this this came out in 96. And the moment that it hit cable, I was watching it all the time and it would play on BET. And mm-hmm. um, I've always liked it, but it's only recently that I've started to appreciate it in a different light, just because like, I think it was around the time, like, after Girls Trip, where people were talking about, oh, when was the last time that a bunch of women were in a movie together and it did really well? And the only other times that I could think of was Waiting to Exhale and Set It Off. And mm. I couldn't think of anything um before that, where it was just, like, more than one black woman, you know, on the poster. Right. Yeah. So I was thinking about it a lot, and then I recently rewatched it and then bought it so now I own it and I'm and I am very happy about that and also (laughs) (laughs) since like I'm queer I appreciate Queen Latifah's character way more than Mm. I did when I was a kid and I did not know that I was queer (laughs) can't wait to talk about it more um Jamie what's your history with it uh, this is one of the many movies that I have seen in parts on cable TV, but I'd never sat down and watched it all the way through beginning to end. Uh, mm-hmm. I've seen many of the iconic scenes, but I, I had never taken in the full movie. And holy shit, this movie is so great. Like I, I There's so much going on. Researching the production of the movie was very interesting as well. Like This movie has everything going for it and expectedly it was reviewed uh by like older white male film critics incredibly weird the the Mm. rotten tomatoes uh you know gap between (laughs) audience and critic um is telling it's sure i i loved it what's your history caitlin uh i had not seen this before and i'm mad at myself that it took me so long to see it because i mean heist movies are right up my alley Female-driven heist movies are even more up my alley. So few of them exist. Um, So, again, I'm bummed I slept on this for so long. But I'm glad I've finally seen it because this movie rules. And it makes such important commentary and just does a lot of really cool stuff. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. So, should we just dive into the recap and go from there? Uh, Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, we meet Frankie, Vivica A. Fox. 
Um, she works at a bank that gets robbed by an acquaintance of hers. This robbery turns into a violent, bloody shootout. Mm -hmm. Because she knew the robber, she gets fired. Um, and she is suspected of collusion by the police. The main person there is Detective Strode, played by John C. McGinley, thinks that she is Am involved. I supposed to know who he is? Oh, he was in... He's in Scrubs. He was, he was on, he was on Scrubs. Scrubs, yeah. But he was he's in a, like, a lot of these like cop movies, too. If you like look back at the 90s, he's in a lot of them. He's got resting cop face. It makes sense. <laughs> he does. <laughs> the first thing I saw him in was Office Space. Oh. Um, he plays one of the Bobs, and that's what I know him most from. Well, I don't... I don't like him. <laughs> yeah, his character, I have a whole spiel on like the friendly white male cop trope in media. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely hate it. <laughs> yeah, it's so it feels like out of place in this movie, too. It was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. But. Like why it didn't yeah. it doesn't make sense also because his partner is a black woman and she does nothing and says nothing, nothing. <laughs> i kept waiting for i was watching it with my boyfriend i'm like any second now we're gonna get some information about her character and it just never comes it never right. comes the same way i was waiting for um cleo's girlfriend to speak aloud the entire movie i'm like she's oh, gonna yeah. speak in this scene she never sure. says a word i don't think <laughs> It almost starts to feel like the movie is playing a joke on you because they cut to her so much. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we ever see her say a word. Anyway, yeah. but yeah, the, the cop is, the way that the tone of the movie treats the cop is, is like, hmm, this feels right. like a studio note. And then I'm getting very ahead of myself, but the other detective, Detective Waller. Yeah, his partner. I kept thinking the movie was going to end with like the, because I hadn't seen it before. I was like, okay, here's what's going to happen. They're going to rob the one last bank. Detective Waller is going to show up and be like, and like maybe catch them or something. But she's going to be like, you know what? You go on ahead. I'll, I'll just pretend like I didn't see you. And then she lets them go because, like, oh. she's like, I get it. But that doesn't happen at all. She, like, redeems herself, all. sort of, kind of. No, yeah, right. John C. So McGinley gets that, gets that <laughs> note. He's the one that, like, yeah, yeah he... <sighs> It's it's so strange. <laughs> like, yeah. what what is even the point of her being in it at all? Because, I mean, <laughs> at least, like, I don't know. Like, I've watched, uh, you know, a bunch of black movies from the 90s from this time. And a lot of them talk about how black cops are complicit in enforcing white supremacy. We see this in mm -hmm. Boys in the Hood as well. Mm -hmm. Like, especially in Boys in the Hood. And so it's mm -hmm. weird that this movie doesn't seem to question her except for the scene at the very beginning when Vivica like looks at her and like says something to her I don't remember what she says but oh, beyond she's like, that you didn't even offer me a drink of water or something like yeah that. and it's just yeah. like and that's the only part that we get but I mean other movies were way more I guess thoughtful about that but I mean that's like that just goes into my one big issue with the movie is that it likes cops too much and mm -hmm. It, yeah. While also making cops look really incompetent. So it just doesn't make <laughs> sense to like them so much when they're so bad at their jobs. 
cannot make sense of it. Yeah, the vibe is very much like, well, they're they're bad at their job and they're murderers, but you gotta love them. And it's like, we don't gotta love them. We don't. Right. I don't know what to make of it. And it does seem like that scene with Detective Waller and um, and with Vivica A. Fox at the very beginning, it seems like that is setting up something that will come back. Mm-hmm. But it's never, this particular dynamic is never uh, set off. Right. Oh, I wonder wow. if there's like a scene. <laughs> That's great. That was great. It, they never set it off, Jamie. <laughs> but yeah, I wonder Someone if there was a scene that was cut. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like it sounds like from the research I did on the production, it seems like this movie went through many, many drafts. So it, for where when stuff like that kind of flagged for me of like this feels like a something that we kind of lost in the middle. I'm just assuming it's that, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's more to discuss there, but um, yeah. so we we meet um, three friends uh, who we later we soon discover are Frankie's friends, but it's Stony, Jada Pickett Smith, Cleo mm-hmm. is Queen Latifah, and Tishan is Kimberly Elise, mm-hmm. and um, they work together as janitors at an upscale hotel. They are all struggling financially. Stony's younger brother Stevie, played by Chaz Lamar Shepard reveals that he's unable to go to college after all because he didn't get a scholarship and they were all hoping that he would be able to go to college and get out of this cycle of poverty. So that's kind of a big devastation for Stoney especially because she helped raise them after their parents died. Mm -hmm. And then Tashan has a young child. She can't afford to pay for the babysitter. Um, And then... Cleo's stakes are perhaps a little lower than everyone else in that she seems to mostly just want to fix up her car. Um, But those are kind of the what's at stake from a financial situation for these characters. Cleo thinks that they should rob a bank uh, because the guy who robbed Frankie's bank at the beginning made off with like Mm $20,000. No one else thinks it's a good idea yet. Then we see a scene with this creepy car salesman who wants Stoney to come work for him. And he wants other stuff from her too, mainly sexual favors. She needs an advance, but he'll only give it to her in exchange for sex. And she's desperate, so she has sex with him. Only to find out that her brother lied and didn't get into UCLA at all. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after that, he is shot and killed by police because they mistake him for being one of the bank robbers from the beginning of the movie. And that, I mean, that scene is devastating and it it is fucking horrible. And then at the end mm-hmm. of the scene, again, like the the movie seems to kind of let the cop off a little bit yeah in this where he's just like oh no oh no oh darn we messed up i shouldn't have done that you're like why why yeah then they revisit the idea of robbing the bank and they figure that with frankie's knowledge of banks they think that they can pull it off without anybody getting hurt so they decide to do it they start scoping out this big fancy bank where stony meets keith Blair Underwood's character Mm -hmm. um, who works in like upper management at his bank. Keith has this like tiny mustache. (laughs) The mustache is not big. It's quite small. It's so cute. It is. (laughs) I was not at first I was like not sure if I was going to get on board with Keith but then I, I ended up getting on board with Keith. 
he's a little touch and go for me. Blair Underwood, it hot, but I don't know. There's that one scene where he like, he's like, "Ooh, Jada, your outfit is weird," and then he like makes her change into a different outfit for like the bank gala they're going to. Yeah, she's wearing like this very like colorful like you know kind of like festive maxi dress and he mm-hmm. and he has her change into like a little black mini dress right right which is not i liked i first of all he was wrong the first time the first dress was lovely and i yeah. liked it and mm-hmm. then there's like that scene at the i don't know i mean i i like i generally like it but it was kind of like her big night out is to this like evil bankers gala you're like yeah oh, i want better for her than this this evil banker gala but mm-hmm. everyone's having fun and then you like see his the like inside of his house in different scenes and he's like well it's not much but it's home and then it's like this mansion you're like what are you talking <laughs> about <just> like, sir <laughs> Sure. Well, like he went to Harvard, so mm. and he calls you went business to business school B school. <laughs> B school. Oh my god! I had to like rewind and go back. I was like, if that is what it's actually called, no I need one to calls like it that. Like <laughs> this, right? They call journalism school J school, but there's no like, there's no like, there's no B school or like C school. <laughs> I went to F school, film school. Thank right. you so much. That's a really funny way for like writers to tell on themselves. They're like, yeah, they probably call it B school. Let's just put it down. <laughs> <laughs> what a funny. Yeah, that was a great. And she doesn't flinch either. She's like, ah, yes, B school. <laughs> no, she needs clarification. She's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he's like, oh, sorry, business school. <laughs> And then he says he works on Wall Street, and we're like, ah. Anyway, so he hits on Stoney and eventually asks her out while they're scoping out this bank that they intend to rob. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Tashan has to bring her baby to work since she can't afford a babysitter, and the baby accidentally consumes some cleaning products, and they have to rush him to the hospital, and then Child Protective Services take her baby away. So now everyone is even more highly motivated to go through with robbing a bank. So they start to make preparations. Cleo procures some guns and a getaway car. Some guns from Dr. Dre. Yes. <laughs> yeah. A great cameo. The mm-hmm. Playing the guy of guy that owes favor. <laughs> right. And has a bunch of guns. That's such a fun heist trope to me because I feel like that that is like a character that appears in some form in every heist movie of like, well, how will we get item? It's like, oh, guy owes me favor. <laughs> and then we see guy who owes favor. Mm-hmm. So then Frankie, Stoney, Cleo, and Tashan go to rob a bank wearing disguises and a couple of them feel uneasy about it, but Frankie sets it off. Hey, that's the name of the movie. I love how much they say that the name of the movie in the movie. <laughs> well, someone had to set it off. Oh yeah, well, because when Cleo is getting the gun, she's like, "No, I don't want. I want something that can set it off." And I'm just like, "Yes." <laughs> You're like, "Yeah." <laughs> right. I one of the many things. I mean, it's like. It's hard not to want to talk about every part of the movie as we mention it, but there is so like 
I don't know. I I love that. I feel like a lesser movie would kind of employ some like they all know how to set it off right away, but they get like steadily better at robbing banks as the mm-hmm. movie goes on. Where like the aesthetic and the weapons for the first robbery are very different from the third, and you're like, okay, we're all learning here. This is cool for sure. The way the first robbery was shot was really cool because it was all one shot, just kind of like moving around the room. There's no edits and it happens in exactly 60 seconds because you see the shot starts with a clock and then ends with the same clock and it's one minute later and you're just like, oh, this is good filmmaking. The blocking in this scene, the acting in this scene. The music. Oh, loved it. So anyway, so they arrive at this first bank and they go through with it, except for Tishan, who runs away um, because she chickens out. And it's a success and they get away with $12,000. Meanwhile, though, the same cops from earlier, Detective Strode and Detective Waller, are starting to suspect who might have done this robbery. And they think that Frankie was involved. I have another huge issue with that plot point, but we'll get there. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Then Stoney goes out with Keith. Meanwhile, Cleo and Frankie want to rob another bank because they need more money to be able to kind of fully leave their old lives behind. Stoney doesn't want to. She and Cleo get in a huge fight, but it doesn't last long. They make up. And then there's this fun Godfather inspired scene. <laughs> where I had seen this scene before, but I didn't know the context of when it came in the movie. So mm-hmm. I went in thinking set it off was way sillier. Oh, then yeah. it ends up being, but th- that scene is so awesome. It's mm-hmm. so good. It's yes, it's a great scene. And also I had listened to, um, I don't know how much destiny's child you listen listen to, but their album, the writings on the wall starts with a scene just like that with Missy Elliott talking to destiny's child, like, uh, like the Godfather. Oh. And I had grown up hearing that. And then I watched set it off after that. And I was like, Oh, okay. Wait, I never would have connected that. I know exactly. Wow. Yeah, set it off was first. So I think that it came from that. (laughs) They were just big fans. Oh, I love that. (laughs) That's great. So basically, the group is like, okay, we just need to do one more big robbery and then we'll be set it off. Nope. You're like, but what about the rule of threes? I know. But right, they don't they they haven't thought about that yet. Yeah, they don't know the screenwriting rules at this moment. So they go to the second bank and this robbery is kind of touch and go. It's lasting a little too long. Their their getaway gets a little botched. But they manage to get away with Well, the second over... one isn't the second one where Queen Latifah drives through the bank? Correct. <laughs> which is it gets a little botched just drives the car into the bank i love that scene apparently there's like a display of like teddy bears that the truck runs into because all of a sudden there's a shot of like teddy bears exploding across the front of the car no no it's it's perfect it's great and also tt really steps up in this robbery because she is like someone almost 
someone has a gun and someone is going to stop them, but yes. then she's able to, which I really liked. I liked that it was like she got scared the first time and then the second time she was like instrumental to mm-hmm. set setting it off. <laughs> to setting it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's pretending to be one of the hostages basically. And then yeah. she's like, oh no, you don't. When the guy with the gun tries to stop things. For this robbery, they managed to get away with over $260,000. Their plan is that they're going to keep working at their janitor jobs for the next few days while they get TT's son back, and then they're going to leave town. So they stow the money in the hotel where they work at and go about their normal business. Mm -hmm. Then we have a Stoney and Keith steamy sex scene. Yes. A lot of tight shots, a lot of oil, good soundtrack. (laughs) A lot of butts. And then the others show up at work and learn that Luther, their boss, has stolen their cash that they stowed away. So they go after him. They find him. I think it's TT ends up shooting and killing him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They can't find the money, but there is a woman there who Luther was having sex with, and she witnessed the whole thing. So then Cleo gets picked up by Detective Strode and put into a lineup, but she had taken this witness's ID and been like, this is for insurance. Like, if you identify me, I will kill you, is the implication. So Cleo does not get identified, and she gets released. But with the money gone, they realize that they have to rob another bank. So they decide to go for the big one, the rule of threes. Um, Keith's bank. Keith's Keith's bank. bank. <laughs> I love when Jada's like, not Keith's bank, and they're like, Keith's <laughs> and they're like, yep, bank. Keith's bank. Sorry. <laughs> now the problem is that the detectives are already there, showing security camera footage to the like upper management staff at the bank, and Keith recognizes Stony from the footage, and he's like, no, not my girlfriend, Stony. So the women show up to rob the bank, but because the, like, cops are already, like, right there, there's this big shootout. Mm. T.T. gets shot. They get away. And then Tishan dies in Stoney's arms. Uh, another very tragic scene. It's horrible. And then mm. they have to escape from the kind of that situation. And then Cleo kind of martyrs herself to save Stoney and Frankie. Stoney gets on a bus, but Frankie gets caught and killed. But Stoney makes it to Mexico, and she's got her bag of money, and she's the only one to make it out. And then the film ends with her kind of driving along the coast. It's a perfect ending shot. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the story. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come right back to discuss. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. 
together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Where should we start the discussion? There's there's a lot of stuff here. This is one of the best casts. Like, it's such a great cast mm. because, I mean, when I, I've been, you know, looking back and researching um, black film for like the past 30 years and just kind of look specifically looking at a lot of the talent that really didn't get to be in that many movies because there just weren't roles for them. And this mm-hmm. cast is just so... It's so perfect, like, just all of my favorite, so many of my favorite underused actresses, like, specifically, I think that Vivica Fox was an underused actress for a while, especially, Mm -hmm. like, until, like, leading up to, like, Kill Bill, but even, like, since Kill Bill, she's been really underused. Kimberly Elise, who I love, 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 and who was, she starred in the very first Tyler Perry movie, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, and she was... She was amazing in it, and and she, I mean, like, and, you know, Tyler Perry got huge after that. I mean, he was already huge in terms of, like, um, theater and stuff, but Tyler Perry got huge in film, and she didn't, and I hate that because mm-hmm. she's great. And Jada mm-hmm. Pinkett Smith, one of the most underused actresses of our time. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about that in the Bad Moms episode, where like she plays one of the side characters who's she like one of the mean moms. Seconds. It, yeah, and yeah. it's like what you have her. Why didn't you use her at all? You know, like her and Magic Mike Double XL, like Jada Pink, like that was that was beautiful. I was mm. like, we need to use her 
like she's used in Magic Mike Double XL in every movie. <laughs> She and she really like I mean, I had to look up. I was like, how old is she in this movie? She's like 25, if that. And she's just like on another level. I mean, she's her performance in this movie is fucking incredible. It's Mm -hmm. so good. Everyone. She's she's amazing. And uh, and I also love that she got a love scene because I love I love sexy Jada Pinkett. I love. Well, I guess that that's like a, a place we could go to because we see we see um, Stony have sex twice in this movie, and something mm. that I appreciated that the movie does is the way that those two sex scenes are framed couldn't be more different, and sure. because they're told from her perspective, which I feel like is something we lose sometimes in movies, where even if the protagonist is a woman, you still somehow end up seeing the sex scenes from the male perspective for no reason, presumably. But in this, we see her at the beginning. I forget what the name of the car dealership guy is, but Nate, I think Nate. Okay. So, so he, I mean, he coerces her basically into, into having sex so that she can do this down payment for UCLA. And, you see her face during that scene. It doesn't Mm -hmm. focus or linger on him. There's no like, you know, over the top, like, you you are there with her, not with mm-hmm. him. And then in the sex scene with Keith, it's like the best. It's a corny 90s sex There's scene. a candle. <laughs> there's got to be a candle. It's just... There it's, has to be. There's an open flame. Just There's oil everywhere. Oh, so you got to have the it's oil. It's very slippery. It's a very slippery <laughs> sex scene. Oh. <laughs> and like Blair Underwood, like because Blair Underwood is so much always like... He's always playing like very like they. I mean, Cleo calls him calls his character this in the movie a buppy, a black yuppie. Like he's mm. always playing that character, and that character is usually very like rigid and kind of like sexless, even though he's so handsome. Like even I remember watching him on Sex in the City and being like, imagine what this would be like if he wasn't surrounded by white people on the show. <laughs> Like, what if there was a sex in the city where I just got to see his ass all the time and then I wouldn't also have to think about him being fetishized by, like, white women who just, like, love the way that he talks or, you know? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so seeing him get a sex scene is really nice. There there really aren't that many Blair Underwood sex scenes. Which is a, tragedy. a, a, a crime. It's a great... <laughs> I really enjoyed the sex scene. It's so, like, it's very of its time, but mm-hmm. it's good, and it's, like... I, and, and contrasted with the other sex scene feels exactly right in the opposite direction. Yeah. And usually you get those overly objectifying or, like, exploitative sex scenes from male directors, which this movie does have, so... Shout out to director F. Gary Gray, you know, legendary black director for, you know, treating those sex scenes responsibly and being respectful of the characters. And just the entire narrative to me is by and large very respectful of its subjects, these four women. Mm -hmm. It tells their story. It dives into their characters. We understand who they are. They're so distinct from each other. We understand their motivations. Because that does not always happen when you have a male director directing women. Well, F. Gary Gray is also like, he's, this is, I've, I've seen, I think 
more F. Gary Gray movies than not. I had not seen this one all the way through, but he also, if you want to like feel horrible about yourself, he's uh, 27 when this movie comes out. So mm. there's that. And his his big movie before this was Friday uh, with Ice Cube and Chris Tucker, which comes out the year before this. So he's just like firing on all cylinders, yeah. uh, especially at this point in his career. But right. don't sleep on The Fate of the Furious. <laughs> um... Now, I want to talk about some other people behind the scenes. Sure. So the film was written by two people, Takashi Buford, Mm -hmm. who is a black man, and Kate Lanier, who we were, yeah, Caitlin and I were talking, uh, we had a a long discussion about Kate Lanier earlier today because she's, uh, she's she's all over the place. Yes. So from my research, here is what I've gathered. She wrote the screenplay for such films as Beauty Shop, Mm. What's Love Got to Do With It, Glitter, a TV movie about TLC, uh, among a few other projects. So these are mostly movies that are about black women. Now, as far as her background... She is a white woman. Yes, so, or, so, okay, we, well, we watched, okay, this, I had the same yeah. thing where I'm like, I'm like 80% sure she's a white woman, but when you search her face, you're, j- you get the same kind of like unclear image. Okay. So we were having this discussion today. Cause we were also, we're like, okay, we want to be sure. Yeah. That this, so, uh, Caitlin found an hour long interview and bravely, watched it watched the whole thing (laughs) and kate lanier is white but don't ask her if she's white because she'll say well i'm half jewish my dad's side of the family there's all kinds of stuff going on there and it's like you're kate Kate, you're white (laughs) and then but she then she later says she doesn't know what she is And um, and then she acknowledges that she looks white because... But it's because she's white. She is. (laughs) That's why she looks white. (laughs) And then, okay, here is the absolute worst part of this interview. She goes on to say that because she has hung out with a lot of black people and that she gravitates toward them, she feels eligible to tell black stories. Oh, does she? And, <laughs> yes. and by tell, she means profit, profit off from. Of. Yeah. <laughs> she, it's the only like extended interview of her that exists. She's being interviewed by a black woman who keeps looking to the camera Jim Halpert style every time <laughs> starts talking about how she's white. But is she white? And it's like, no, she is white. It's a mess. She negs the interviewer. <laughs> and then she pivots at the end of this clip to be like, well... Hollywood is ageist, and I'm like, don't change the subject. Like, do you do you think that Rachel Dolezal has this interview, and that like like she like downloaded it to her computer and watches it all the time? <laughs> I was getting some Rachel Dolezal vibes from this too. screenwriter. Yeah. She yeah. So and then at the end, she's like, I'm all for getting more black writers into the room, but why are people mean to me because I'm old? And you're like, this sentence has been a journey. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Wonderful. So, so glad that you watched that. I would not have watched that. So thank you for your service. <laughs> um, well, 
that brings me to an excerpt from uh, a book entitled Shaping the Future of African-American Film, Color-Coded Economics, and the Story Behind the Numbers by Monica White Ndonu. I might have mispronounced that. Quote, Patriarch capitalism presents several hazards for Black cinematic storytelling, representing Black males as primarily unsupervised except by law enforcement and correctional institutions does not reflect the historical survival of Black families and African-American communities that have depended upon single mothers. Convention maintains that the Black man can fix what has been broken in the Black community. This assertion becomes particularly significant considering the race and gender of the screenwriters and director of Set It Off. Director F. Gary Gray and screenwriter Takashi Buford are African-American males. The fact that co-writer Kate Lanier is a white female who has penned scripts for several films about black women is also noteworthy. What's Love Got to Do With It? Glitter, Beauty Shop. Since none of the filmmakers on this project are black women, their only intervention is through performance, much like Black Americans in early mainstream theater and film. Um, the writer goes on to talk about how Black women have been underrepresented, misrepresented, and over-sexualized, even in movies made by Black filmmakers, again, particularly Black men. And then she says, quote, Set It Off exposes the racial and gender disparities in Hollywood's Ulmer scale, as well as the reverberating effects of those disparities both on and off screen, employing black people and women either for behind the scenes roles or as actors does not guarantee a fair or honest representation of black culture or women, end quote. So basically she's saying, you know, with this movie, there are black people behind the scenes. There is a woman behind the scenes, but maybe set it off a movie about black women and their struggle should have been written and directed by black women. Now, I would say that this film does a pretty good job. Like, I really enjoyed this, and I think that there's a lot of great things to take away from it. But, like, we were already hinting at earlier, like, the treatment of, like, the white male cop is, like, a friendly ally to <laughs> the characters is, you know, a little... And, dissonant. and the treatment of his partner is kind of like a subordinate who doesn't really seem yeah. to have any yeah. opinions. And I mean, the only other place where I think that it really comes up is with Cleo and her girlfriend, which is, it's a really interesting thing because like, I think that Queen Latifah is really hot and I can get very clouded by that. But, <laughs> but like, there is no denying that like the way that she is written is kind of like this idea of like, well, you know, it's got to be like this. I mean, and not to say that, I mean, she's basically playing a stud and she's very good at it. You know, love mm. the cornrows, love mm. the style, love everything. But it's but it is interesting that her girlfriend never talks. And I think that right. that yeah. is that could be just like no one in the script really having the imagination of like okay the stud gets to talk but what about the femme does the femme get to speak and the answer is no mm. no she doesn't <laughs> to a point where it's like it seems like they're making a point by not letting her speak the other characters even comment on it they're like she's not gonna say anything like that first the scene when when ursula is first introduced 
and they like say hi ursula and like she just doesn't respond they're like she's not gonna say anything like they comment on the fact that she doesn't talk and it's like this could have been fixed (laughs) it just seems like there's another movie where like are there just like scenes like all put together where ursula's talking and she's like having all these opinions and it's just like in some (laughs) other like side movie (laughs) i would love it if there was like a cutout scene where she was just like hey i don't think that this is such a good idea (laughs) right Or she's like, I know exactly how to rob a bank. Let me give you some do's and don'ts. Like there, there are so many ways she could have. Be- oh, where's the Ursula spinoff? It's so bizarre that they don't let Ursula talk. I have, I have a little more context for the Ooh, uh, scripting process. So just last month, Vulture did an interview with Vivica A. Fox about this movie mm-hmm. and so there's like a ton of really fun like behind the scenes facts um but one thing that how i found out that this movie went through a number of drafts was uh vulture asked what rang false about the original script vivica Ace fox responds quote jada was a crackhead there were so many stereotypes of black people f gary gray was just like nope nope her brother was a crack dealer in the first draft. It didn't make any sense. He was like, no, Jada's going to be working hard for him to go to school. And her motivation was him saying, I don't want to go to school. And the director came up with what she had to do to get him the money to go to school, unquote. Mm-hmm. So it's, and, and it does sound like based on this interview, while obviously the there were two main writers of this movie, that F. Gary Gray encouraged all four lead actors to ad lib to add in stuff um where they felt like it made sense there was like mm-hmm. I, I guess that a lot of like the the famous lines in this movie were ad libbed by by the mm. actors so nice yeah vivica a fox is so she also says that she's athletic seven different times in this interview um which <laughs> I, is I true, read it but i just i'm like she she said it seven times for some reason love her <laughs> i love her so much i guess the next thing I want to touch on is so this is a movie about like black female friendship, which we don't see very often at all. I mean, Jordania, you were talking about how like between this and girls trip, that's kind of it. I mean, even waiting, waiting to, to exhale, exhale, which, which did on a they're friends, episode. but we talked about this on, on that episode where like we only see them on screen together for maybe like, 20 minutes in the entire movie and the rest of the movie is like those women off uh with the various romantic pursuits that they're you know that's trying true to yeah. get with so this is such a rare story to see on screen at least in a cinematic mainstream way um and i feel like as is always the case the movie was super successful and it was like a hit and it mm -hmm. made its budget back four times because like these are stories that people want to see there just weren't any studios making them Mm -hmm. um, or making them to be released to a wide audience was it in that same interview with vivica a fox where they were there was mention of this film being pitched to, I think it was New Line Cinema and being rejected mm-hmm. like three times because they didn't anticipate like anyone would want to see a film about a bunch of black women. They were just like, who wants to see that? And it's like, well, a lot of people because this movie was a box office success. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like a lot of those assumptions are like I, I listen to a lot of You Must Remember This 
And there were a lot of assumptions that Hollywood would like try to anticipate the way that people would react to things and be like, well, you know, the the public wouldn't like this. They wouldn't see this. And th- those were a lot of the arguments that they made historically when it came to like black stories. And I mean, those arguments are are the exact same and they haven't really changed that much now. Mm-hmm. And it's I mean, this movie came out the year after Waiting to Exhale so there's a, a really good Clarkisha Kent piece, and I'm just like a Clarkisha Kent nerd, so I was oh, excited awesome. to read this piece that she wrote. But she she basically uh, makes the argument at one point in her piece about Set It Off that um, Set It Off and Waiting to Exhale are often compared to one another, um, but she also makes the argument that that is like, she's like, I think that it's because there's four black women on the posters, <laughs> because outside of that... You also in this movie see poor black women. You see like they're mm-hmm. they're all working class people. And you know, in, in waiting to exhale, it's you're you're in a different class, you're in Arizona, like it's it's quite different. Yeah, there's really I mean, genre wise they're so different. Like there's truly nothing except that they're both about four black women that it's <laughs> well it comes like with with black movies in general especially movies about black women they just tend to be lumped together as this this like giant genre that's like black this like very indirect like mm-hmm. not really descriptive genre and it's it, i mean it's it, it it's very frustrating Mm-hmm. Because they'll, because people just be like, oh well, uh, I'll talk about like for example, my like a thing, my kind of like pet thing is that I love seeing black women's sexuality on screen, which is like mm-hmm. even in my opinion, like they don't really get to explore it like as in like a way of like objectifying, yes, but in terms of like black women enjoying sex, you know, mm-hmm. like having orgasms, having a good time. I very rarely see that. Mm-hmm. And when I start to talk about that, will people be like, oh, well, there's this movie and this movie and this movie. It's like, yeah, there's a black woman in it. And yes, there's a love story. But does but does she come like does, does she reach <laughs> orgasm? And it's oh no, she doesn't. So then that's not mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's the yeah. That there needs to be a, a media test for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be your your test. That's going to be yep. the podcast for you, Jordan, in thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I think that the reason people like in the in a kind of whether they realize it or not, bad faith way, lump all all these movies together is because there just are not enough of them that are like released in the mainstream which is an issue all its own Mm -hmm. it's frustrating yes yeah uh let's take another quick break and then we'll come right back for more discussion bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey i do too 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. 
because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, ready to set it off again. I wanted to talk about how this, how useless cops are in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I realized (laughs) that, like, it's not just that, like, it's not just, like, the stuff that we see in the movie. It's also just, like, the context of what they're doing. They're putting Mm -hmm. all of this manpower and all of this money and all of these guns and, like, helicopters and riot gear and all this stuff to get four women who just need some money like Mm -hmm. (laughs) i was just right i like is especially like now with the protests and everything me just watching this i'm just like look at look at all of this time and energy and shit that they're spending because four women just want some money like why like you know with all this all this like funding that you you could just give these four black women some money and then like right. send them on their way like we don't need to actually do this and like the end with like especially with the chase and the manhunt and everything it's so stupid it's so <laughs> stupid to look at like i'm just like just everybody else could be doing something else and then like there's a newscaster and it's like everybody's watching this and it's like it's just like this is not new this is not like oj in the bronco these are just like four women who like 
need to pay their bills and the ending (laughs) drives me insane because like it's john c mcginley and um he's talking to vivica fox's character and he's just like i mean even even the point in the bank anytime that he's just like we don't need any more violence you know put the gun down we don't need any more no more people need to die and so he's like talking to vivica fox and like he just he says that and it's just like why are you saying that when you know that, like, immediately she is going to die? Like, it, it's just so weird to me because why would she trust him? Because when he's in the bank and he's like, you know, we don't have to do any more violence, whatever. Everybody's ready to surrender. And then they just kill Tashawn. Like, just a cop right. just, like, shows up, like, after he's already, like calmed everyone down and just like shoots because they're just trained to shoot and then and then it becomes a shootout it becomes a shootout because cops are fucking stupid and then he for some reason like he's like so sad about it and so like upset but then you still like spearhead this entire fucking manhunt if you're so sad then why do you keep bringing all these people with guns like it doesn't make sense Especially because he, I feel like the movie takes multiple opportunities to distance him from what he is in charge of and is definitely doing because he's in charge of it. Where, like, after they... He uh, started this case! He started the investigation! The chief, who right. is a black man, told him not to, and he does it anyway! Right! And the whole, yeah, he's like... Uh, she's colluding. She, uh, Vivica A. Fox knew the initial bank robber, so she's in on it. And it's like, well, he's making a bad faith assumption. And Mm -hmm. then the movie has him turn out to be right, which I also don't like. I don't like the story logic there of like he is making a bad faith assumption, like flat out. But then they're like, but you know, she did rob the bank. It's like, it's fuck it, oh, you. yes, that that's Ugh. another thing that makes me really mad about this movie. And it reminded me of the, it actually reminded me of Crash. I don't know if you've seen 2004's Crash, not the good <laughs> one, the, the David Cronenberg one in the 90s where people are turned on by car crashes. Amazing uh, yes. film. Beautiful. <laughs> yes. If you ever want to talk about that one on this podcast. I will come back to talk about the the car crash fucking movie. The horny car crash movie. (laughs) Have you seen it, Jamie? No, I haven't seen it. It It's a movie about people who get turned on by car crashes. Mm. It's fucking awesome. I also read the book, and it's a very horny book. Uh, That's like one of those ideas you're um, like, why wasn't that my idea? (laughs) But the bad crash, the 2004 crash. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but. There's a scene yeah. where it's like Ludacris and Lorenz Tate are just like talking about police profiling and how everyone just assumes that they're robbers and that they're gangbangers and everybody mm-hmm. has the worst assumptions and then they immediately commit a robbery. Rob someone. <laughs> like, it's, it's, oh, it's so frustrating because he is absolutely profiling in that scene, but the story would have you believe like, but was he wrong? And you're like, that is not 
I don't even think the message that this movie is trying to say. Like, what is going on? The movie, the movie doesn't really question whether this cop is wrong or not. The movie really just questions, like, oh no, like, why is the system like this? And it's like, well, we're looking at the system. It's John C. McGinley. It's just <laughs> doing bad things and then feeling bad about it for a second and then going back to do the things again. And it feels intentional that the most heinous crimes committed by cops in this movie are committed by faceless like we don't know them it's by random like guy in background um is always the it's it's a cop that we don't know which feels Mm -hmm. like another intentional choice of like almost like i don't god only knows who involved in in the production at whatever level uh made the decision of like well we can't have the cop that we know be the murderer it has to just be Mm -hmm. like background cop number five otherwise that introduces like you know questions that maybe this movie doesn't quite want to answer it's so frustrating and it's also the the fact that we get that i i thought that that um exchange between frankie and uh detective waller at the towards the beginning of the movie was setting up something that could have been like a really interesting, effective, like, conversation. And then it's just like, nope, we're just going to give you more John C. McGinley than you ever would have asked for. Yeah, nobody nobody needs that much of him. I've seen every episode of Scrubs. That was enough. <laughs> and it's also like, now that I've seen him in all these older cop movies, when I watch Scrubs now, he just looks like a cop. He mm-hmm. looks like a doctor cop. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like an undercover cop working at a hospital. Yeah. Well, there's the Detective Waller character. I really cannot make sense of. She's played by Ella Joyce. There's that scene where Queen Latifah's character is in the lineup and they're trying to get the witness who is having sex with Luther to identify Cleo. Mm. And she doesn't do it because she knows Cleo is going to come after her if she does. So she says, I don't the perpetrator is not in this lineup. Meanwhile, Detective Waller is like, she's right there. I don't like, she's like, she's so mad. And it's just like, I don't like, it would be like it once again in boys in the hood, it's made like very specifically clear that like the black cop character does not like other black people. And that's the Mm -hmm. point. Like that's the critique, like to become a cop, you would have to not like other black people. And so like, I almost just kind of wish that the movie like leaned into this and was just like, she just doesn't like other black women because at least that would be interesting and that would Mm -hmm. give her something to do. And it would also like explain why she's subordinate to this guy who's just like, for all she knows up until like everything gets ramped up, who's just like harassing these women. Just like right. following them around for no reason, just wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayer money to just harass these women, and and it's the way he talks to her is also like so just arrogant and annoying. He's such a he's a know it. Like there's what is that scene where they're both in the office together and he like puts high res photos of the four main actors and is like, "What did I tell you?" And I'm like, "Oh, this is the moment where she's gonna like." you know, push back or something's going to happen. And then they're like, nope, next scene. 
No, and I don't and I don't like the way that he talks to all the four main characters either. He's so condescending. He's just like, Yeah, I know your life is hard and like all you have to do is put down the gun and like I know your whole life story because I'm a fed and I'm like spying on you, but I'm pretending to be a therapist. It's like, no, you're a fed. You're a fucking you're fed. A- you're not a therapist. Shut up. No, and therapists don't stalk you. And <laughs> therapists don't like, like I, I know about your brother and your mother and your grandma. And it's like, no, like if my therapist knew that much about me, I'd be like, what's going on? <laughs> therapists famously do not do these things. It's so it's so frustrating. And yeah. and I mean, I guess I don't, this might be like an accidentally effective thing where he he says at multiple times that he understands what they're going through but he obviously doesn't or he wouldn't be he would not be in this job like i don't know where that was headed which is kind of wild because it's like what is happening with the four main characters seems so focused and like Mm -hmm. so like the movie knows exactly what they're doing with the four main characters for the most part. And then the cop, the, the cop B plot, I feel like like, unless you're going to make commentary on what they're doing, why Mm -hmm. is it there? Like why, why, why? Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they don't discuss anything. They don't like follow leads. They decide that these are the women they're stuck with that the entire time. There's no investigation at all. (laughs) No, he just does what his boss tells him not to do, profiles, <laughs> and then murders people. And then at the end, he's like, all right, Jada, you got me. You can go to Mexico. And I think that we're supposed to be like, that was nice of him. Like, I was trying to discern how the movie was trying we, to make me yeah, feel. Yeah, I, I think that we are supposed to. And I mean, it's also just like... um a bit of like Hollywood morality from that time. I, you know, I love, I love black cinema from that time. It's some of my favorite, but there's also this sense of there's only one of us that's going to get out of this. Like in any given Mm -hmm. movie from that time, you get the feeling that only one person is really going to make it. And like, I almost feel like Stoney makes it just because she has scenes where she's just like, you know, don't you ever think about the future? Uh, Don't you ever think about where you're going? And because she's the only one who thinks about the future, she's the one who lives. Right. Okay. So one of the things that I thought was, effective and really cool about this movie and you know still very timely and relevant today is like just the idea of these characters doing what they do because they are trying to get out of this cycle of poverty and the cards are stacked against them because they're black women and they come from a low socioeconomic background opportunities are not open to them for any sort of upward socioeconomic mobility you know like every like they have to rob banks because they have no other choice they're they're desperate just everything that's happened to them has led them to this and and i love the line that i who says it where the four of them are finally all on board and they're like okay let's do this they're like yeah let's steal from the system that is 
addicted to fucking us over. Like that feels like the yes a thesis statement in in the movie F- for sure. It's when um, they're planning the first heist and. TT is like, I feel so bad. We're just, we're stealing people's money. If we're stealing from a bank, you know, it's it's other people's money. And then Cleo's like, no, insurance will cover it. Like that's a ridiculous comment. And then Frankie says, we're just taking from the system that's fucking us anyway. And we're like, yes, like steal from that system. Like do it. Um, but yeah, there's this there's this kind of like motif, I suppose, where it starts with Keith, who again he works in like corporate bank management basically he loves banks he loves banks he loves money and he has a lot of it and he is dating stony who she says at one point like i'm borrowing pieces of your life like you live this fancy life this is not my life or background like we come from very different places basically but he's like, you know, what's your five-year plan? Like, what's what do you plan? What's your I, lo- I always what's love this idea plan? of a five-year plan. Like, <laughs> it's just and she's such a middle-class thing that, like, I just can't right. even fathom it. And she says, I <sighs> don't know. I've, like, never, th- I have no idea. And then she kind of, after this conversation with Keith, she says, hey, Cleo, do you ever think about the future? Like, what's your five-year plan? And Cleo responds, I don't know. I don't have a five-year plan. I'm just trying to get through today. And it's like, yes, like people trapped in poverty don't have the luxury of planning ahead or, you know, like setting goals for the future. Like that is a very middle class or upper class thing. Yeah. I don't know how much Keith, like, I I think that Keith definitely does like learn a lot from Stoney and mm-hmm. he is like he listens to her and he does take what she has to say in because the way that that scene about the five-year plan ends is Stoney starts talking about her brother and he's like well great what's your brother's five-year plan and she's like yeah. he was murdered and mm-hmm. Keith is like right like it just so I, I do I do appreciate that those conversations you know happen between them and it's like mm-hmm. two different class experiences entirely and but yeah Jordan you're totally right I didn't even connect the dots on that one where it's the person who survives is the one who was taking in that kind of five-year plan morality upwardly mobile and all that Mm -hmm. yeah well I mean like because when you have Cleo like you know very early that Cleo is gonna die simply because like in the wake of Reagan and everything like that we we see Cleo you know as soon as she gets the money she gets rims and she gets like she gets like hydraulics for her car and it's just like Mm -hmm. I know that based on the morality from that time there's no way that she's gonna live because she's got hydraulics for her car like Mm -hmm. and it's just I mean that's that's the kind of morality that movies were working on at that time so I mean, I hope that it's changed. I wouldn't really know because there's not really any recent films to compare this to. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Not that I can think of. I, I mean, I guess, I guess you, I guess maybe Hustlers. Oh, Hustlers I get, might like, be. There's yeah. similar themes going on. Yeah. Man, we got to do Hustlers. Screwing over the system. Wait, you haven't done who... Hustlers yet? Not we yet. Have, we haven't done, we've had five million requests for hustlers and we haven't done it yet. Oh god. We're being withholding. Love hustlers <laughs> so much. But but uh, one thing that I want to talk about that we didn't talk about is that uh they get high together in a scene. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's my favorite scene in the movie. And I realized that like I can't think of a lot of movies where black women are just getting high together, which is weird because like that is 
what I do with my friends, we get high. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just weird. It's all the scenes where they're together are so great. But that one, yeah, that one is the best. And it yeah. seems like I would guess that there is like a fair amount of ad libbing in that scene as well. Because it's just like so comfortable and so natural and so, oh, it's great. Yeah, it's great. I loved it. I just want to see black women getting orgasms and getting high. I mean, those are two of my favorite things. <laughs> Both do happen in this movie. I, I mean, I guess, do we see Jada come? I assume that she does. Maybe I shouldn't make I, I assume I assume that she does too, but I mean, who knows? Like, it might have just been, like, really hot and heavy, and then, like, right before she hits it, he's just like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> like, I'm tired. Would you like a Pop-Tart? <laughs> Not speaking from oh, no, personal I love experience the idea of him all. having pop tarts in the like that. That's like his one like working class treat. <laughs> <laughs> Heard of these pop tarts at B school? They're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, their their friendship is so it it. I, I like how often it's put on display. It's a major plot point at different points. And I also love that they are, I feel like female friendships across the board are often kind of written in this very, like no one ever disagrees with each other way. Or mm-hmm. if they do disagree with each other, it's, it's this big end of second act kind of disagreement. But like the four main characters are constantly like they bigger with each other a lot. There mm-hmm. are, certain like flare-ups in their friendship like after the first robbery where tt runs away before the robbery and then i think it's frankie who is like no you don't get any money you didn't Mm -hmm. participate in the robbery and and then apologizes and is like okay sorry that was fucked up i shouldn't have said that obviously we all want you to get your son back and like just having that like really strong friendship but also just seeing in the way that like strong friendships are where it's like people fight with their best friends constantly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it it goes to show just how well these characters are characterized because it never feels not justified. Like any argument yeah. or disagreement they have, you understand where each character is coming from because you know the character well enough to understand their motivations and everything that informs their opinions and, and all of that stuff can we go like just character to character and just do yeah. a quick run i mean sure with with tt i love i, I love tt so much i hate so like i i do appreciate that the movie like makes it explicitly clear like why they are put in these extremely unfair situations where mm-hmm. it's once Luther puts TT on the books and she's not getting money under the table anymore, so much taxes are taken out that she can't afford childcare, which directly leads to her having her son taken away, right. which is fucking awful. Like there, and and it makes it clear that this is like not a fair situation for her to have to be in. And that everyone surrounding this situation, except for her friends, are being deeply antagonistic and mm-hmm. unhelpful about it. Do we we never find out what happens to her baby either? No, I don't think so. I wish they had. I guess I don't know if there would have been a, like a, an organic way in the narrative to like address what happened to that baby, right. but we just kind of don't revisit that at all. Yeah, that made me feel bad. Yeah, I know. I was like, I, I. I worry about that that poor kid such a cute kid yeah and then like i mean you have to imagine that like there's never enough social workers in foster care and just that it's it's 
terrifying. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, and I mean, there's also just, you know, the history of, like, child protective services being weaponized against black mothers, and mm-hmm. mostly, you know, it's black mothers losing their children because they have to work. Right. Mm-hmm. Almost like services should be offered instead of... Ugh, instead of just, you know, taking people's children away, yeah. Mm-hmm. And giving them to strangers. Yeah, I guess we, yeah, we, we don't find out what happens to... Mm-mm. her son and there i mean her tt's death i mean everyone's death is devastating yeah but tt's death and i mean just that scene and that is like so beautifully acted by jada pinkett um mm-hmm. when she's talking about the banana flambe as like tt's dying in her arms it's just like it's gut-wrenching oh, it's heartbreaking so- and then after that scene, this movie does it a couple of times. It never really bothers me, but there are a few abrupt tonal switches Mm-mm. in this movie. Yes. And one of them comes right after TT's death where I was like crying my eyes out on my couch. And then I, they got to keep the movie going. So then it's like, do, 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 do. And then it's like back to the chase. And you're like, okay, right. I guess. Yeah, the chase <laughs> is still happening. I just. I know. Yeah. But yeah. And then. We have Cleo, an out character. Yes, it's a miracle in the in the nineties. It's a miracle. Um, yeah, I again, I wish maybe her girlfriend had said one word, or <laughs> you know, she's not a part of the group. She's not one of the main characters, but it was a choice and a choice that I don't necessarily understand. And maybe that was just, mm. but like, there are jokes in this movie, but this isn't a comedy. There's comic relief now and then, but yeah. tonally, this is a pretty, this is a serious film. So mm. if there's like a running gag, like, wouldn't it be funny if like Ursula just never talks and like that was a running gag and like that the filmmakers decided to throw in there? It's like, okay, weird choice, weird movie to put a running gag like that in the in the story but okay but um but in any case yes cleo i think cleo is my favorite character of the four i I do like them all a lot but like queen latifah's performance is just she knocks it out of the park yeah she's wonderful i mean cleo is so is you know she's very honest and Mm -hmm. you know she's very funny and she's and she's brave. Her her death, which is very sad, but it, it's a very brave death. Yeah, yeah. She's a, she martyrs herself, and she uh, like to save she, like, she like lights a cigarette. She's yeah. just like oh, I love that. That's just so Thelma and Louise. Just like let's mm-hmm. go. Yeah, it's. <laughs> And they reference Thelma and Louise earlier in the movie, too. They reference it in the movie. And this movie by critics got compared to Thelma and Louise because critics just love making references. there are women in a car, Caitlin. That's (laughs) clearly... There, yeah. yeah, her. I mean, her death is devastating, but she gets that kind of like, yeah, that like cowboy moment at, at the end of like... She's been put in this impossible, unfair situation. It's being broadcast on news because why? And she still, you know, in, in the way that she is able to, takes control of the situation all that she can, which, like, is mm-hmm. it's great. It's great. You also see her and her girlfriend um, kiss. You you so rarely see, even if there is a queer character in a movie, they often are not allowed to be seen kissing or embracing mm-hmm. their, their partner and... They were nuzzling. You see them kiss, and it's like, 
I found that surprising for a movie made in the mid-90s. Yeah, if it were me, I would have added a scene with them in bed together. But yes, it's very good. (laughs) (laughs) I was, yeah, I was like, it's, it's, you don't quite get the Blair Underwood treatment. Mm -mm. But I would have appreciated it. That scene where Queen Latifah is like kissing up Ursula's leg. I was like, Mm. I'm interested. Let's maybe (laughs) like, let's not interrupt this. But 1996 is gonna 1996 sure but yeah i I feel like the queer visibility in this movie is infinitely higher than you know most of 1996 which Mm -hmm. is great yeah for sure frankie i i i think frankie is like i mean we were talking earlier about how you know like the, the movie really makes each woman's situation explicitly clear which you almost never get in heist movies it's usually a more vague like we would like money um Mm -hmm. kind of thing but for this movie frankie is another like very interesting specific character because she is trying to also get out of this cycle of poverty she is in the process of making that happen by working at a bank Mm -hmm. and then through no fault of her own that's taken from her and she is knocked back down and Mm -hmm is rightfully angry about it that scene at the beginning that like vivica a fox is just like fucking destroys i was thinking of it like vivica fox between this and kill bill like she really knows how to open a movie like Mm. she (laughs) can really get a movie started but like the the scene with her and her bosses and the police where no one is coming to her defense she's literally saying like i i don't even really know that guy i just live near him and they're just openly discriminating against her and mm-hmm. it's it's so painful to watch and if it yeah yeah they they perceive her as being guilty by association just because of where she grew up and she says like i can't help who i know this isn't a friend of mine like it's just a guy she's seen around in her neighborhood and like they're like well you're probably colluding you're in you're this is collusion and uh it doesn't sit well with us that you know this person so you're fired and i love that she kind of she it's not her idea to rob the bank but she sort of spearheads the plan of like well i know banks like i know that you have to do like during a robbery the tellers are going to do this and they're going to do this with their right hand and this with their left hand so like we have to we know how to get around that and that's how we're going to be successful at this which unfortunately by the end they are not but like but she gets that amazing line at the end where people are giving her shit about the procedure the procedure the procedure at the beginning mm-hmm. where she was just like there was like a gun in my face a gun to my face i'm sorry i didn't enact the procedure perfectly and then she's fired and then at the end she even though i'm just like why does the cop not die at the end infuriating but but she gets that line like <sighs> what's the procedure at the end and gets to throw it back in his face and mhm Oh. oh man, I just wanted I just wanted him to just like burst into tears and just hit the ground after that. <laughs> right. <laughs> like just be he should just be like everyone let's Every, all everyone right go now. home. Like, I'm a piece of yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. We I mean it's like I don't even think he loses sleep that night. Like he's just it's so fucking infuriating. But I I am glad that Frankie got like got a last line in on it but it's Mm -hmm. just it's uh it's so devastating and infuriating and oh and and vivica a fox is just like such a powerhouse like it's so it's so good oh 
Like during that scene, he's like, no, everyone stand down. Fellow police, lower your weapons. I'm going to go talk to the this woman. And it's like. It is I, good cop. And, and like, it's, oh. oh, this, again, this, this like the trope of like the white male police officer who just wants to help you. He's like, help me help you. We see the same thing in Thelma and Louise. We see the same thing in <laughs> National Treasure. Um, Harvey Keitel oh, right. plays both of those characters. Right. And then among other films. Harvey Keitel plays good cop a lot. Yes. So it's just this trope that is a part of the whole like copaganda, like just like pro cop mentality that is so prevalent in Hollywood. But I just I do not understand why that is in this movie, this movie that is about like the unfairness and injustice that is the cycle of poverty that so many black people are forced into and which is reinforced by police. And why then bring in a in a, a cop character who is like that we're supposed to be endeared to and sympathetic to. Yeah. And it, it like the whole, this whole character, like this whole stock character falls apart under a moment of scrutiny, but mm-hmm. hasn't stopped anyone from writing it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then, and then there's Stony. Yes. Stony, who is, I mean, like the, it, she seemed, I, I, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I guess as close as you could get to him, I think that it's very much an ensemble movie, but Stoney, I feel like probably gets the most screen time out of everybody, but she, we, we start off by seeing her advocating for her brother, trying to get him out of this cycle of poverty. And then he's subjected to police brutality. He's murdered it. I thought it was so beautiful and like a, a really important thing to include, to watch her mourn him with mm-hmm. her friends. It's, a tough scene but it feels like one that the audience really needs because it's like she's what five-year plan it's it's taken from her and then Mm -hmm. immediately she has to get back to work and she has to like move forward with her life kind of whether she likes it or not and yeah and then and then and then there's keith and then there's keith (laughs) I, (laughs) i think i mean there are some things that keith does and he he gets like he negs where one may maybe not want him to he does hit on her in his place of work he's not even doing his job right he's like i'm not even (laughs) supposed to talk to customers but you were just too hot for me to not talk to which is a classic guy that you don't end up in a relationship with (laughs) mine but what can you do um yeah but i originally because i feel like we we talk about this a lot of like is the romance story necessary to the Mm. to what's happening in the plot and i think that this relationship is important and it has a place in the movie i was prepared to not not think that but ultimately i feel like it does Mm -hmm. yeah i guess i can very easily envision a version of this movie where that storyline is removed and it not really affecting the whole plot in a way that I feel like there's something lacking but the fact that it is there it also doesn't bother me I guess I'm just kind of ambivalent I mean uh I you know I mentioned that I was watching this movie earlier on Twitter and somebody mentioned how they feel like the Blair Underwood character should have been cut out and I mean he has more of a narrative purpose like in terms of thematically 
than he does really like a movie purpose. I mean, he represents mm. the the kind of life, like in a sense, the kind of life that they could have if their circumstances had been different. Like he's basically just mm. there for the contrast. Right. So, I mean, like trying to, I, I mean, I guess in a sense, the film was trying to you know, make a difference, like, you know, some black people have different lives, and it's easier for some, and it's different for others, like, I mean, and that seems like a very basic thing, but I, I almost feel like maybe people would feel differently about him being in it if there was some real conflict between him and Stoney about things, like, he's, the thing about Keith is that he's, once he learns, like, what he's supposed to learn about, like, you know, working class black people are having a different experience. He learns it, and that's really it. And, I mean, it would have been maybe interesting if it took him longer to learn that lesson. And there were, like, a few more, you know, like, arguments. In which case, then the themes of the movie could, like, show themselves in that argument. But I yeah. think that that's why he's there. Yeah. Right. But I agree that he his kind of background could have been used to a greater effect and function. Um, in the narrative than it is. I feel like it, it's, it starts to head in that direction, but it doesn't quite get all the way there. There definitely could have been other, yeah, just more kind of just thematic or whatever it is that gets explored that they don't tap into as much as they could have. Yeah, I agree, Jordan, that it's like, it is this like outlet for a discussion about class to happen and maybe it like doesn't happen to the extent that it could or should but I'm glad that it's there like there I mean a lot of the stuff that's on is it their first date where he asks her what her five-year plan is if so what are you doing <laughs> I uh, would truly I would love to meet the man that does this like that's so confusing <laughs> to me <laughs> I'm like is this what ba- I don't I've is this never, a job interview like what do you I have never I don't think like met much less gone on a date with a fancy banker but if this is how they talk my god um <laughs> but but I mean in that conversation alone I feel like you get a lot of interesting conversations started you have the five-year plan you have um Stoney saying he's asking her like do you feel free and she's like no I feel very much caged and mm-hmm he kind of tries to like cutesy his way out of her saying that but when he listens to her and I, I agree that there you know it maybe there would be more productive discussion if they if the script had his character push back a little more because I feel like he represents kind of this like bootstraps mentality I guess of yeah like, you know you work hard and you'll be successful and right without taking into consideration all the forces of like if that were true then Frankie wouldn't be in this situation because she literally worked at a bank and she had that those opportunities taken from her for no reason and right I don't know yeah Mm -hmm. it definitely starts some interesting conversations and we're pretty sure that he made Stoney come and we're glad for that as well (laughs) yeah and the fact that he like doesn't really you know in the end when she just like drives away and she's just like in mexico like he's like smiling when he's off the phone he's just like yes this is fine like i like i I like that he doesn't really do anything extra like try to make their last conversation bad or like ask her to come back like he's like no she's gone (laughs) yeah Yeah. which is like i mean the the ending shot 
I'm like, maybe it's a little corny, but I thought it was so beautiful. I thought it was great. It is, yeah. And even the 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 montage at the end, you're like, this is very '90s. Oh, when she's like reflecting on all the memories and all the good laughing and crying. (laughs) Yeah, Mm, yeah. It's very Mm. pure. I cried so much in the last 20 minutes of this movie. It is just like everything happens. Um, I don't like that it's like implied that the cop is like doing her this huge favor by allowing her to survive and have to start a life in a place where she knows nobody Mm -hmm. in order to survive. But I do, I do like that she, you know, I mean, she's just like, so you, how long this movie takes place over the course of what, like maybe a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Estonia is a miracle. Like she has to take on everything at once and has to push forward you know, regardless. And, and so she's, she's still, she's dealing with the grief of her, her brother. brother being murdered by police because he had the same haircut as the actual perpetrator of the robbery. Yeah. She's dealing with being coerced into sex by this creep just so she can get money to pay for her brother's tuition. Like, She's dealing with so much and just the gravity of everything. I don't think we've mentioned yet, but in a lot of the, it it didn't hit for me until about halfway through the movie that like the historical context of this movie is also, it takes place in LA two years after Rodney King, Mm -hmm. or no, sorry, four years after Rodney King and two years after the 94 Violent Crime Control Act from Mm. Clinton. So it's like, also it feels very... I, don't, I mean, I, a lot of usually when movies take place in L.A., you're just like, OK, they couldn't afford to shoot somewhere else. But in this movie, it is very intentional that it's happening in L.A. at mm-hmm. this time. And it informs a lot of what's happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. So any 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 stuff, anything else uh, you guys wanted to hit on? Well, one last thing about Stoney. Um, oh, yeah. She cuts all her hair off at the end. Yes. Probably mostly so that she will not be as easily recognizable by anyone who might be looking for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does become the baldest woman in charge. Absolutely. Um, by doing that. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, I had one more. Okay, so I this is just a question mm. for, for the Zoom room. Um, <laughs> there were murmurs, I guess, last year of this movie being remade or... sequel potentially with Issa Rae in a production possibly writing role Mm. and there were a lot of takes on um, Clarkisha Kent's piece um, was one of them in Entertainment Weekly arguing that this movie does not need to be remade Mm. Um, it was made correctly the first time but I guess I'll just I'll just uh, I don't know is is I sort of I don't I don't know I, I don't think it needs to be remade but i think we should just have more movies with black women like yeah i don't i don't really see the point of this being remade i just think that yeah yeah, there should be more yeah yeah especially just watching it right now in this moment so much of the stories feels so incredibly relevant that it doesn't feel like there needs to be any kind of like update yeah no it doesn't (laughs) in spite of kate lanier (laughs) Right. Uh, yeah. What a bizarre person she is. Truly. Um, does anyone have any other thoughts? 
Uh, that was all I had. Yeah. I mean, I just think people should watch it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm oh, glad yeah. I finally did. Yeah. Does it pass the Bechdel test? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. They're talking about robbing banks. They're talking about their lives. They're talking about all manner of things yeah. constantly. Talk about everything. Um, and it also it, it passes many of the other tests, including the Duvernay test, the Vito Russo test. For sure. So as far as our nipple scale, in which we examine the m- movie through an intersectional feminist lens, I want to give this probably like a four because it does so well to characterize these four main characters, show the nuances of their friendship, show the nuances of their situation, their desperation, the cycle of poverty that they're in, that they're kind of helpless to get out of. I mean, you know, it's a story about systemic racism and sexism, holding these characters back and limiting their options. And for them, the option becomes crime, you know, not because they're inherently criminals or bad people or because they want to commit crime, but because they have no other choice. Again, as black women, the odds are stacked against them and desperate times call for desperate measures. And unfortunately for these characters, the law catches up with them and several of them are killed which is sadly reflective of many black people's lives where they're severely punished for just trying to survive and the systems in place, you know, systems being law enforcement, the workforce, economic structures, etc. These systems are incapable or unwilling to acknowledge or understand that the systems are designed to oppress different groups of people, such as black people, black women, And I think that this story really effectively tackles those themes and and that reality. Um, And, you know, the fact that you have queer visibility on screen is great. Um, A queer black woman especially is something that I've seen very little of in popular media and just media in general, especially from the 90s. So that was pretty remarkable for a mainstream studio movie. Um, I guess the main gripe is the over-sympathy that the movie extends to the friendly white cop who just wants to help. And it's like, if you, right. like, Jordan, like you said, like, if that were true, if he wanted to help in any way, he would, like, defund himself and, you know... Give give his, his ha- salary yeah. to, to the women. I mean, he could he could sp- <laughs> he could have spent all that time investigate that he spent investigating, like making sure that these women were okay, mm-hmm. like <laughs> right, which is what he claims to be doing the whole time. Yeah, but he's not. No. So I'll give it four nipples, and I'll I'll give one to Stony, Frankie, Cleo, and uh, TT. Um, I will. I'll go the same way. I'll I'll do four nipples uh, and piggybacking off what you've already said. I would also say I wish that there were more black women in high level creative roles on this movie, and that the movie yes. would have uh, benefited from, you know, maybe not hiring Kate Lanier, Mrs. I'm white, but am I? Um, <laughs> so. I, I understand that it's, it's. I mean, we have like F. Gary Gray, we who is like truly 
a legend and like we have a lot of wonderful people in creative roles uh Mm -hmm. but there you know this is a movie that is centered on black women and there should be um black women behind the camera as well also yeah the, the weird cop thing and also just the failure to characterize detective waller uh in any way is just mm-hmm. a, a dumb decision, I thought. But the performances in this movie are fucking incredible. The yep. soundtrack, I don't think we've brought up yet, but it's fucking incredible. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, required viewing for everybody. Four nipples, one to um, each of the four leads. Jordan, how about you? Um, Sure, yes, four nipples. <laughs> <laughs> A rousing shore. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I know you're probably tired. It's quite late where you yes, are right so now. <laughs> yeah, it, it is late where I am. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, we've been recording for so long. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us in this discussion. Where can people follow your stuff, follow your social media, etc.? You can find me on Twitter at J-O-U-R-D-A-Y-E-N and also that on Instagram. And uh, you can find my rating everywhere. Uh, You know, I've written for like Vogue and GQ and AV Club. And I write for Bitch Media a lot. That's a great Mm -hmm. website. Can't can't endorse Bitch Media enough. So, yeah. (laughs) We've, I think, I think we've, we've cited your work a number of times on the show before to the point where it's like, why has Jordan not simply been on the show? Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for, for being here. Yeah. And listen to Bad Romance podcast. Oh yeah. Please do listen to Bad Romance podcast. It's good. You know, it's yeah. good. Bronwyn's good. It's good. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> um, you can follow us at, uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we've got our Patreon, AKA Matreon. It's $5 a month and it gives you two bonus episodes every month plus access to the entire back catalog. We've got our T Public store, tpublic.com slash the Bechtelcast for all your merchandising needs. Thanks for listening and uh, we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. 
I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.